0: Welcome to Sexcavation, hosted by me, Bridget Woods. We're here to take you on a deep dive into sexuality and gender research. Sexcavation helps break down those big concepts you've probably heard before. Ideas like heterosexism, polyamory, toxic masculinity. With the help of some pretty cool psychologists, academics, and activists. Our mission is to make all of this complicated research on sex and gender accessible to everyone, because... Let's be real, it affects all of us. What's love got to do with it? This week, Lisa Diamond takes us on a journey in discovering what love, the most elusive concept we've tackled to date, really means. Dr. Lisa Diamond is a professor at the University of Utah, with her work ranging from psychology to gender studies. Her groundbreaking research on sexual fluidity explores the changing nature of women's sexual and romantic relationships while also maintaining the very real aspect of sexual identities. Lisa's work centers the voices of women while also remaining acutely attuned to the biological and cognitive aspects of gender and sexuality, the psychobiological, if you will. Lisa helps shift our question to, what's the brain got to do with it? Hint, a lot more than you'd think. Let's dive in. So thank you for joining our podcast, we are so excited to have you with us today. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, so our, our our theme for this month, um, February, which is quite fitting, is love, mm. uh, which is also quite a broad topic, I think, especially within the scientific research. So I'm wondering if you can start our conversation off with... What is love? As a researcher, as a scientist, as a, as a psychologist, what, what is love?
1: So from a research perspective, we think about love as an attachment bond. So, here, you know, researchers investigating these relationships really have drawn a lot from John Bowlby's really influential research. And that the, the psychological experience of love uh, and the, the neurobiological architecture of love is all linked to the type of bond that we develop with our caregivers early in life. That infant caregiver bond is really the template from a sort of sort of systemic perspective in terms of like, what is the system that is operating? Now, I want to be clear that that is separate from kind of whacked, Freudian notions of we're all looking for our mother or like you had a distant father or that crap. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the system in our brains and our bodies that motivates us to seek one person, to be the person that we trust the most to take care of us. Mm -hmm. Humans are unique from other species in that we give birth to our babies at, a, at the most developmentally immature state compared to any other mammal on the planet. But basically when humans are born, they're uncooked. They need a lot more time in the womb to develop, but because of our incredibly large brains and therefore our large heads, there's no way for humans to gestate uh, their babies in their bodies and give birth to them without giving birth to them at a moment that is pretty developmentally mature, immature, because otherwise the, the brain and the head just can't get through the vaginal canal. I always show my students these, you know, you see these videos on YouTube of horses being born. It's like horses are born and then they immediately like stand up. We're not doing that. Like there will be no standing. There will be no moving or running or hopping. When humans form, born, we're in, intensely dependent on the caregiver for survival. And Bowlby developed attachment theory as a way to explain sort of what the impact of this incredible developmental immaturity is on the human sort of interpersonal system. We, we rely on our primary caregivers for everything. Mm-hmm. And what's adaptive in humans is for the infant to immediately start forming a strong bond with the caregiver. That basically is a proximity alert system. If the caregiver is too far away, you cry and you bring that caregiver back into proximity. And it doesn't matter who the caregiver is. It doesn't matter whether the caregiver is biologically related to the infant. doesn't matter whether the caregiver is male or female. Mm-hmm. It's anyone who is competent enough to care for that infant. The human pair bonding program, which is how scientists refer to kind of love, exactly the same system. It's neurobiologically the same. It is behaviorally the same. It's the same system of come to me, take care of me, don't leave me i often show my students uh, just the remarkable similarities between the way we talk to babies and the way and and also mothers and the way we talk to lovers if you think about how many love songs say hold me rock me never leave me mm. that's basically what the attachment system evolved to do To find someone who is going to put you above everybody else, who's going to take care of you and care for you and love you more than anyone else, to put you first. That's what we experience from our caregivers. That's what keeps us alive, given how immature human babies are. And that's exactly what we want from adult pair bonds. Don't leave me. Take care of me love me forever. So basically what is love? Love is an attachment bond and that system is as old as our whole species. Mm. Can you give a little bit
0: of, like a brief sort of idea of what that attachment uh, style program looks like for those who might not know a lot about it?
1: So basically, again, it's a proximity seeking system mm. and It's automatic. It starts to develop right away. You know, now I think it's common in a lot of hospitals for people to be like, Oh, I need to immediately bond with my infant after birth, put the infant on my chest. That infant is gonna bond to you no matter what. You know, when we were evolving in the Pleistocene era, we didn't have a lot of time to lie down and bond, right? When the tigers were chasing you. So you don't need to do anything special to initiate that. It's part of our brains. That infant is going to seek out the caregiver that is most familiar and most responsive. Mm. Exactly what triggers the attachment system in adults for romantic partners. Who is most familiar and who is most responsive? We often find ourselves becoming attracted to people that we didn't initially think were the people we wanted to be with but we spend a lot of time with them. They're our best friends, right? There's how many movies and television shows and novels have been written about people kind of ending up with the person who was there all along. (laughs) The reason that that's even a plot is because it's wired into our brains. We prefer people who are familiar. They're trusted, right? Mm. So we can become enchanted with folks who are familiar in the same way that babies start to bond and mama is anyone who they see the most. So when you spend a lot of time with someone, you automatically have a leg up on becoming attracted to them and attached. and responsiveness, right? One of the most powerful cues for becoming attracted to someone is finding out that that person is attracted to you. Think about how many times someone has said, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're kind of into you. We're like, ooh, finding out that someone else likes you is one of the most powerful cues for attraction, right? Because that's a cue of responsiveness that Mm -hmm. someone likes us. So when you have familiarity plus responsiveness, that's sort of a magic bullet. And that gets us going. And that starts that attachment system up. This is a someone who's likely to take care of me, to be into me, and that makes me into them.
0: Interesting. So if we're taught if we're thinking about how it becomes different in a, an, or not different, let's say, in, in adults. So what then becomes the difference between love and lust, right? And how can we recognize that difference?
1: That's a great question. So The the primary difference between infant caregiver attachments and adult romantic attachments is the presence of sexuality, right? Mm Sexuality is relevant to infant caregiver attachments, and it plays a role in adult romantic attachments. Now, importantly, you don't need to be sexually attracted to someone to form an adult pair bond with them. Mm -hmm. You can fall in love with someone platonically. And if you look at the historical and cultural literature, you find plenty of examples to that effect. Of People being like, I don't want to have sex with this person, but they're like my North Star, they're my everything. If I, you know, I wish I could marry this person. Bond formation doesn't require lust, but sexual attraction and sexual activity dramatically speed up the process of attachment formation Mm -hmm. among adults and can sort of make it more intense in the beginning. Most folks will say that in the early stages of romantic love, you're having sex all the time. And that's quite common, that's a a known phenomenon. In fact, we know that with a new partner, you have sex more frequently in the first year with that partner than you will ever have again. Which in some ways it's like, oh my (laughs) God, I'm like enjoy that first year <laughs> three times a day it's never gonna be three times a day again so go mm. ahead change your schedule do it <laughs> accommodate that because it won't be a problem in the fourth or the fifth or the 20th year so sexual desire and sexual frequency help to sort of cement bond formation early on they're not required for it but they facilitate it but mm. it's important to understand that Being attracted to someone is a different psychological experience than the the kind of bond that we talk about as an attachment bond. And one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, cross-culturally, research suggests that in a new relationship, that sort of all-the-time sexual activity Mm -hmm. starts to drop off at around the two-year point which is the same time that people often report like, oh, it just, it doesn't feel the same. I'm I'm not obsessing about this person every hour of the day in the way that we used to and we're not texting each other 10 times a day and I'm not, it just feels sort of different. And research suggests that that's because you're transitioning into a sort of full fledged attachment bond, a slower developing process is based more on feelings of security than feelings of sexual attraction. And it takes, you know, time, like around two years. To right. Think, oh, I can count on this person. They will be there for me no matter what. That's a different psychobiological experience, than the experience of sexual attraction. So that early having sex all the time thing, sometimes that happens in a relationship that is about to become. An attachment bond, sometimes it just happens with someone you're enjoying having sex with. And so the key thing for the average individual is to be like, wow, I'm really into this person. That doesn't tell me whether this relationship has what it takes to be the long-term relationship yet. Because when you're in that early stage, it all feels the same. You can't really evaluate whether that relationship has what it takes to make it for the next 50 years until after that early stage of intense attraction and sexual activity sort of fades away. And because a lot of people end up breaking up with partners at the two-year point because so they're like, oh, it's just not as exciting anymore. And I'm like, you may have just broken up at, at the exact time where you could have figured out if this was the person that you wanted to be with forever. Do you
0: think that that breaking up could be I'm telling myself I'm breaking up with someone when really I've figured out that I don't want to be with them forever?
1: That's certainly possible, but I think it's really hard for people to know. What they're often responding to is, oh, it just feels different than it did in the past. And what I say to my students is, of course it feels different. You know, you know there, there are no 50-year couples mm. who feel the same way at year 50, as they did in year one, there's no way it's not gonna change. And so the task is for you to figure out whether that change is just the natural evolution of the relationship, still a power and a fire and, and a, an intense connection mm-hmm. that is there. Um, or whether it's just, yeah, this relationship had its peak and there's really nothing. Yeah, so again, the heart, and so what I often say to my students, I say, if you're like at around the two-year point, maybe just give it another couple of months of what you're really getting from this relationship, because if it is one of those ones that's going to endure, that means that there's something there that's powerful beyond just sex, beyond just attraction. Really nothing else there if it's like, I really have nothing to talk to this person about. Like, you know, I kind of like, after we have the hot sex, it's like, I don't even really want to have dinner together. That's a different thing. You just have to separate out the elements of bonding, which require a feeling of security, a feeling of just sort of meshing with that person and Mm. wanting to be there for them. You have to separate that out in your brain from just plain old sexual desire. Is there, you sort of
0: spoke about this, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what the, what the relationship in terms of development or or what that looks like between love or pair bonding and sexual attraction. I assume that there's
1: some relationship there. Initially, they're exactly the same. Initially, that intense period of like, I want to see you. I want to like get naked with you. Initially, that is all the same. And one of the things that's interesting and can be complicated is that the... The pair bonding system in our brain is going to start working whether that other person is an appropriate sexual or appropriate long-term partner or not. A lot of people often are like, oh, don't keep having sex with that person. He's wrong for you. If you just keep screwing him, you're going to be attached. Mm. That's absolutely true. Our brains cannot help becoming attached to people that we spend time with, that we touch, that we're physically intimate with. Which is why, you know, it's interesting, there are, you know, in couples that have arrangements for outside sexual activity, like, oh, we're our primary partner, but we can have casual sex. Often they make rules like, don't kiss the other person. You can never have sex with that person more than once. Our brains will begin to bond no matter what. So if you have enough contact and sexual activity with someone you're going to start to kind of want to see more of them, even if they're an inappropriate partner. So once you start having all of that good, pleasurable, exciting contact with someone, the brain just gets going. and It's like, "Oh, okay, okay, I want more of this. I want more of this. Mm -hmm. Up to you on the more cognitive level to say, okay, if I've decided that this is not someone I want to fall in love with, then I'm maybe I'm going to need to not see this person that often because body mm. doesn't know the difference. You know, my, my hormones and my body says, Hey, you've been intimate with this person. This person cuddles with you. You get these big surges of pleasure and then relaxation. Hey, this is a good attachment partner. Your body doesn't know the difference. It kind of makes it sound like that
0: phrase absence makes the heart grow fonder is not Is actually quite the opposite. It's
1: actually, it's it's completely untrue. Um, In fact, the best way to kill an attachment, if you don't want to have it, if you really don't want to be attached to someone, is to not have any contact with them. But the problem is this, when we say not have any contact with them, we truly mean not have any contact with them. Mm. If you have very little contact with them, but just once in a while text them, that just restarts the whole process and makes it even more intense. Really want to stop being attracted to someone? No contact means no contact, no testing them, no looking at their Facebook page, nothing. Make them a non-person and your brain will move on. That's the signal to your brain that's like, oh, this person is dead. I need somebody else. But if you give it any cues that Mm -hmm. there's a possibility, that hint of possibility will just put the fire back up on the flame. Um. People are like, oh, but I haven't talked to them. I'm like, you haven't talked to them? So have you been like looking at them on Instagram? Well, yeah. And have you texted them? Well, a couple of times late at night. I'm like, that. as far as your brain is concerned, mm. that's a possible attachment figure. We're gonna keep seeking that. we have got to cut it all off completely. You said something
0: that that triggered something in my mind, and I'm and it made me think of um, how much these ideas are perpetuated in gender myths, right? So this idea of women are the ones who are, the stereotype is that women are the ones who are you know I can't get to it att- you know only women get attached men don't get attached when they have sex which we know isn't true but what is what is it how do gender myths play into that in a more overarching way?
1: I find it so interesting because you know. Who are the people who are convicted of stalking? Men are stalkers and tend to report more difficulty recovering from breakups than women do. Men have more trouble detaching than women do. So, you know, love is one of those areas where there's a lot more gender similarities than gender differences. Mm. We assume, I mean, the, the big cultural gender difference is that women are expected to do the work of relationship maintenance we're supposed to be the ones who are like we need to talk about where we're going and what you're feeling blah 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 blah, blah. but men are just as kind of biologically driven mm. to about romantic attachment figures as women are they get different cultural messages about it but the the system at its core works the same way uh, one of the interesting things is that research on the health benefits of marriage has found that you know generally being in a long-term relationship with someone that loves you and cares for you is good for your health mm. for everyone but men appear to show greater physiological health benefits from being in a relationship than women do and the prevailing explanation is that for women they're getting a lot of benefit from being in a long-term relationship but they also are the ones who are socially charged with the task of maintaining that relationship, typically doing more housework. They're typically involved in more childcare. They're the ones who are like, maybe we should go to therapy, right? So being in a relationship for them is a benefit, but also some extra stress. Whereas for men, it's typically a benefit only to deal with as much stress. So women get some of the benefits, of being in a relationship health wise, but they have to do more of the work that takes a toll on their bodies as well as their minds. Mm. And and do you think that that
0: that, that are sort of, uh, I guess I'll say like uh, pushing together or or um, compounding what love is? Right, it's not just this biological thing. It's all the things that go into a relationship. Do you think that impacts? Uh, or the way that we think of it culturally impacts then the way that we view relationships
1: and love as this bigger concept, if that makes sense? Absolutely, you know, I I think there's, you know, one of the the things, the messages that we send to both women and men, but especially women, is that if you don't end up uh, having a romantic and sexual relationship with one person, one monogamous partner, who's your best friend and your everything, that you failed, Mm. then you're a person. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. And I think women get that message more strongly than men do because women are supposed to be more interpersonal. There's a researcher named Bella DiPaolo who's talked a lot about the incredible stigma that we give to unmarried individuals in our culture that studies have shown that if you apply for a job and in and if you are in your 30s in that marriageable age but you're not married people judge your entire application for a job as if you are less reliable less competent kind of less accomplished we judge people even on professional terms for what we think to be true in their romantic and interpersonal lives. Mm. Just a complete bunk, because we all know a lot of accomplished people who have like completely messed up personal lives, yeah. and a lot of people with great personal lives who are like professionally incompetent. Our society judges your worth as a person partly based on your ability to have a long term monogamous romantic tie even though from a species perspective that's ridiculous different kind of imperatives biologically right you don't you know our need to to reproduce the species is different from our ability to like manage a company and so this the stigma that we put upon unmarried individuals shows that we still as a culture have a long way to go in really treating people equally because women end up suffering from that more than men. Unmarried men don't get as much of a hit Mm. from being married as unmarried women
0: do. Mm. And that kind of goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of gender myths, where it is not just within the relationship, it's outside of it as
1: well. Exactly, exactly. It's like if you have not secured a husband, there must be something really wrong with you. You know, I'm thinking
0: about... Because we kind of are talking about very heteronormative ways, right? Is the research the same for, for queer folks? Is the
1: love bonding, the pair bonding the same? What does it look like? Is exactly the same. It doesn't matter. You know, that process is a gender-neutral process. We can think about it. The, the neurobiological architecture is the infant caregiver bond. They don't care whether the person taking care of them is female or male. All they care about is, are you familiar and are you responsive? So the bonding program is exactly the same. The differences are in how we've been socialized as women and men to actually be in relationships. Do you think that that sort
0: of this normativity of love, right? I'm putting in quotes. This sort of idea of p- placing, as you said, value on folks, beca- you know, whether they are in a in love, quote, like, quote unquote, again, or not. Do you think that that is? blind in terms of sexuality right do you think that it is really on gender lines or do you think that it impacts queer folks in different ways
1: i think i think it definitely still impacts queer folks there's much more i think acceptance with among gay men of individuals who have not settled down with a single partner but maybe have a cup you know a bunch of good friends and then some people that they have sex with from all the literature we have on the health benefits of having close relationships, as long as you have confiding close relationships in your life, you're going to be better off. They don't have to be sexual partners. It's just that our culture says in general that they are. So gay men tend to be more accepting of a life plan, which includes close interpersonal relationships that may or may not have sex involved with them, and then sexual relationships outside of that. Lesbians tend to be more restrictive about that, that I think more distrust of that as a potentially healthy life plan. Uh, I think partly because we are, are, even lesbians are socialized with the same socialization as every other woman, that if you don't end up in a long-term monogamous sexual partnership, what's wrong with you? And there's less acceptance of alternative pathways like being single for the rest of your life or having casual sex you know outside of a primary relationship i think women uh have been more suspicious of that than men even lesbian feminist women who are questioning the entire patriarchy so often like well there must be something wrong with her if you know she hasn't been Snapped up until now. I think the vestiges of our patriarchal culture continue to um, influence even lesbian and bisexual women.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That also made me think of, um, because I'm intimately familiar with your work on sexual fluidity, and if people aren't, they should definitely check it out. Do you see? any aspects of love as fluid, or do you see those things as, as different completely?
1: Well, love as a system is fundamentally fluid. It mm. doesn't care about gender, it doesn't care about sexual orientation. Again, it's based in the attachment system. So all that the love system cares about is, is that person familiar? Are they responsive? It doesn't care about age, it doesn't care about anything. So love is a fundamentally more fluid system in the brain than sexual attraction. Mm. Most of us are kind of aware of that on a, on a really kind of bare bones level, that we're attracted to people that we have no interest in falling in love with, and you can be in a long-term love relationship and stop being attracted to that person. So I think we all have a sense that those are different systems what's ideal, I think, in our culture is for them to intersect, that mm. the person you're in love with is also the person that you're attracted to. and I, I feel like we should celebrate and all count ourselves lucky whenever that's the case, because there's no guarantee that that should be the case.
0: I'm very curious, because it actually, funnily, the last podcast episode we had was about polyamory. So I'm curious as to what this... Configuration looks like what this peer bonding looks like in folks who are in non monogamous relationships, right? What does that look like? How does that come about? How does it manifest in healthy and you know productive ways that it, we know it does?
1: Most research suggests that it's absolutely possible to be attached to two people at the same time, it's typically, in most cases, one person who you're more attached to. So, we call that. A primary versus secondary attachment. There are some folks in polyamorous relationships who are very clear about the fact that, okay, there's a primary dyad and then there are these secondary dyads. And there are some polyamorous arrangements in which, okay, we got three or four people and we are all equally attached to one another. There's no primary, no secondary, it's all equal. In most cases, the brain does tend to prefer someone over someone else. In the same way that if you Look at an infant that's been raised with both parents, and that infant skins his knee or something and starts crying. You know that infant will typically reach to one parent over the other. It mean that the relationship with the non-reached-for parent is any less important. But our brains t- have a way of prioritizing. You know, we 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 arrange people in a hierarchy. Who do I need first? Who's gonna to come to me first? And if that person isn't available, then I go to number two. And if that person isn't available, then I go to number three. Maybe that's grandma or maybe that's a sister, right? So that doesn't mean that the relationships are any less attached or any less functioning, but our brains have a way of, of hierarching people. in polyamorous arrangements, despite the fact that people claim that everyone's equal, they're probably not all equal and probably each individual has a slight preference for some people over others, especially in situations of emergency. Because the attachment system is designed as a system of protection. So the best way to activate it is to put someone in a situation of danger, right? So who you seek out to have a long languorous conversation with at you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, might not be the person that you would call at 3 a.m. if you were on the side of the road and you were in panic. The attachment system is really designed for that, for situations of emergency, of your life is in danger, threat, fear. And so in polyamorous arrangements, it's likely that if you could find out who people would call at 3 a.m., they might show a preference that might be different from... Kind of the day to day operation of that relationship.
0: Can that, I mean, because I know that you said, you know, as, if you cut off people completely, they're going to essentially, your brain is killing them off in your mind as an important figure, right? Can yeah. this over time change in terms of who is the primary in
1: this situation or who? Absolutely. We, uh, just like infants, you know, I've, there's a lot of cases where. Uh, when an infant is born, maybe one parent is the primary caregiver for the first six months, often the woman, if she, especially if she is um, chest feeding, and then there'll be a switch and the woman might go back to work and the other parent will you know, take over. Mm. And infants ad- adapt quite readily to that. Basically, whoever is most available and most responsive is the primary. So absolutely, that hierarchy of who is first in line can absolutely shift according to who you have the most contact with and who is most responsive. And time spent together is a huge one. So if you're cohabiting with one of your p- polyamorous partners and not cohabiting with another, the one that you're cohabiting with typically ends up at the top of the hierarchy. That
0: makes sense because again, as you say, it's it's time spent. It's who's who's in your immediate vicinity at what time.
1: And I think a lot of us have a sense of this even in our friendships, that if you have a best friend and you live in the same city and then they move, you know that there's going to be a change in the relationship. It's not that you're going to love them any less, but they're not going to be your 3 a.m. phone call anymore. Our changes in the attachment system that take place when we don't have day-to-day physical contact with someone say that the love itself is any less, but it's playing a different role in our bodies and our brains. What do you think about, do you think
0: that there's a problem in putting sort of this value, I mean, we kind of talked about this in the normativity of love, but putting sort of so much value laid in on love, right, as if, as, as if it, um, it, it, not thinking of it as something that can change and adapt and fluctuate over time. What do you think that does for relationships?
1: Well, I think what we need, to, we need to separate out our cultural notion of love from what we know is healthful and important about love. What is healthful and health-promoting and beneficial is security and support and caregiving. Those are fundamental processes that we need as humans. Humans are a group-living species. We evolved to live with other people and mm. to depend on other people. It does not matter whether those other people are family members, whether they are lovers. It, it, all that matters is that they are there. And there are plenty of cultures who never expect for sexual and reproductive partners to play that larger role. There are plenty of cultures in which you marry someone and you have babies and that establishes the lineage, but you don't go to your spouse for support your family, you go to your other friends. So our culture is one that has assumed that that support and attachment role should be bound up with the reproductive role. And that's a choice that every culture can make independently, but it's not something that's biologically ordained. Nothing maladaptive or weird about not your primary support from a romantic partner. That's a cultural and a personal decision. As long as you are getting, as long as you can confide in someone, as long as you have someone to call at 3 a.m., you're going to be better off health-wise than other people. That's what we as humans need. We need to know that there's someone we can rely on but that doesn't need to be a romantic or a sexual partner. We should start giving valentines to the non-romantic and sexual partners who are there for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. For being my 3 a.m. phone call. For being the person that I know would love me no matter what I looked like and would take care of me no matter what. I do as good a job in our culture of honoring those relationships as, as many other cultures do.
0: How do you talk about this, about this sort of uh, neurological or or, or cognitive love, right? And how do you bring in the, the still important and still, we should be talking about things like feelings and embodiment and things like that. How do we kind of hold both of those as important and not prioritize one over the other?
1: I think it's important for people to realize that, again, as a species, we there's a lot of unique things about us as humans but there's a lot of things that that are part of our larger mammalian heritage i think when it comes to the body i mean all you need to do is to just go on google and type in like horses cuddling you know otters cuddling see that that there is something about the body We, uh, mammalians in particular, not so much uh, lizards, but definitely mammals, we need to touch. We have exquisitely sensitive body systems and we know that human infants will not grow if they are not touched. So our bodies are not trivial. The needs of our bodies and the desires of our bodies for touch, for cuddling, for pleasure, for contact, are a biological imperative. They're not something to be taken lightly. Um, and and I believe that, that we should take seriously those, those bodily urges, that it's not just hunger and thirst. We need connection with other people to survive. But again, it doesn't have to be sexual connection. Look at the cuddling between infants and caregivers. If you... You know, I spend a lot of time on TikTok looking at dogs cuddling with other dogs, and it's like that just gives me more happiness than almost. And goats too, I love goats. Ugh. And it's just something, you know, the the need for species to sort of to touch and caress and nuzzle. Bodies are, are a big part of our emotions.
0: So would you say that not only is it that your brain is processing the proximal location to someone, right? This person is in my life every day, but we are genuine, like we are touching. We are, again, Absolutely. I mean, think about
1: it. Touch is basically proximity at its extreme, right? You can't touch someone unless they're right there next to you. Touch just sets off a whole bunch of sensors in our body that are cues to that person's availability, which right. is why continuing to have sex with someone that you don't want to get involved with is dangerous because your brain's going to be like wow this person is right there Cutting off all my systems like this person feels so good how powerful do you think feelings are in being able to
0: n- not communicate about love but to to convince yourself right because you know we we feelings are a very powerful thing and they are you know they are in our body they are in our mind but you know, talking about this as a, as a very cognitive neurological process, you know, how do feelings come in as well as, as convincing ourselves or talking to ourselves about love? How do they play a role in that as well?
1: Well, from a, a biological one, sort of evolutionary perspective, emotions, all emotions evolved as signals to the organism, pay attention. An emotion, is your body and your brain saying to you, something important is happening. It doesn't tell you what the importance is. An emotion is a signal saying, pay attention. Pay attention because of danger. That could be because of an opportunity for something good. And so the difficulty is that our emotions often lead us to like stop everything we're doing And we assume that the experience of an emotion is actually giving us an instruction of what to do. All the emotion is doing is telling us, pay attention. Still a lot of human cognition that then can go in and say, all right, what is it telling me? Is it telling me that I must be in in a state of really neediness because I'm really like having stronger feelings for this person than than I should? Is it telling me that I'm afraid of something I shouldn't be afraid of? Who knows? I think the important thing to remember is that the primary function of emotions for humans is to, to stop them and to say something important is happening. I think that highlights sort
0: of the interconnectedness
1: of all of this, which is all exactly.
0: part of it. Exactly. What does studying love offer us as researchers, as scientists, but also as, as humans living and existing and loving in the world?
1: Well, I find it, you know, I mean, the reason that I study it is because I find it amazing that uh, these relationships, which we often think of as being psychological, are so fundamentally located in our bodies as well. Um, and, and, and they're so influential that, you know, whenever you kind of read newspaper stories and they're like, oh, this person committed suicide after they, you know, got this divorce or... Someone managed to recover from drug abuse because they fell in love with someone who was there for them. Relationships, we, we, are, we evolved to put them in primary places of importance in our fundamental well-being. And that's the role that they play. If you ask people, what are the major things that give them happiness or make them distressed? They don't typically talk about things going on at work they typically talk about their closest relationships, love relationships, attachment relationships, that those relationships have more power to determine whether we are fundamentally happy or unhappy people than almost anything else. And the fact that that now we can see the biological pathways through which relationships influence us on so many levels. I think there's really nothing more interesting about being human, than our capacity to form these bonds and the incredible influence that these bonds have on every stage of our development. I, I, th-
0: I think it's very interesting, as you said, uh, just to reiterate sort of what you said, that so much of, or at least when I think of love, I am very much placing it, as you said, in psychology, right? It is something about the way I'm feeling, it's something about the way my body's doing it, but it is, it is not, that is not the whole story, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's very interesting because during this process of us, you know, uh, you know, looking at the love literature and and figuring out what we wanted to talk about, a lot of the psychological literature is like, we don't know totally what's going on, or it's very narrowed, like this thing, or, or dangerous love, right? When it talks about men's, you know, stalking and things as you mentioned.
1: But even all those dangerous, malfunctional, maladaptive behaviors, they all make perfect sense if you just think about humans as a species. If you just think about the fact that from the brain's perspective, the brain is like, I need you. If you threaten to leave me, I'm gonna go into crisis. There may be a whole bunch of more complicated things with your background and whatnot that makes one person a stalker and one person not, but that emotion of panic upon being left, which I think almost every person has experienced at some point in their life, that is a fundamental part of our human condition.
0: You know, I think of
1: the ways in which
0: scientific research kind of sometimes gets muddled a bit and then comes into public and, and it's sort of like, well, this yeah. is why you know we do the things we do without the nuance of it. But do you see a a danger or do you see like a, a caution about boiling it down to it's it's just your brain right because i can imagine especially yeah. when we're talking about stalking and things like that well that's just the way my
1: brain works yeah. right and i think there's really you know the the problems that come with boiling down science into public dissemination there's no way to avoid that and i'm not mm-hmm. sure what's the right way to kind of square that circle I think it's a fundamental problem. Like, yeah, you don't want to be like, you know, and you hear that all the time, like men are like, well, I'm a man. I've evolved to spread my seed far and wide, right? So the misapplication of scientific research has its own long history and Mm -hmm. I don't, is going to be able to kind of get rid of that anytime soon but i think you
0: also you said as you were saying it you know there are all of these other factors that go into someone is going to stalk someone and someone isn't and i think that's sort of where we then maybe start to to figure out okay it's an, it, you know it, it happens in the brain and also there are these factors that play into it as well
1: exactly i mean and no one is I mean, i don't think anyone has ever suggested that because humans are hardwired for certain responses that they should give into those responses. Aggression is a natural human trait. That doesn't mean that we allow people to kill one another. So we can have predispositions. That doesn't mean, you know, that then, then us as thinking humans, we have to decide how to deal with those predispositions.
0: Um, if you could have people remember one thing about love, if they don't remember anything else from this podcast, but they remember
1: one thing, what would you like that to be? that love as an experience comes in very many different forms. Mm. Love for a romantic partner and love for your best friend are equally good for you. And that individuals who get that nurturance and support from a friend rather than romantic partner, they're just as healthy over the long term. What you're looking for in your life for happiness is having people that you can trust, that you can confide in, If that person happens to also to be a romantic partner, great, that's wonderful. But that's not the only way to live. That's not the way all cultures live. And there's nothing wrong with you if your particular of lifestyle doesn't fit up with the monogamous ideal that is perpetrated by our society.
0: I really appreciate you joining us and, and spreading your wisdom as always.
1: I'm so glad, it was a lot of fun. want to learn more about what you
0: just heard head over to sexgenlab.org to find this month's toolkit what is this thing called love as well as all of the blogs infographics videos podcast episodes and special spotlights on gender and sexuality research got an idea or topic you want us to discuss? email us at sexcavationpodcast at gmail.com this has been sexcavation with bridget woods hope you've enjoyed the dig